So, Christmas is nearly here. Uh, many of you are glad it's finally arriving, right? If there are young people in here. Others are glad it's almost over. And whichever it is, you're waiting for it either to be over or for it to arrive. Either way, you are waiting. You might as well be happy about the waiting, right? You might as well look forward to it being here. During this Advent season of waiting for Christmas, we've looked at characters in the Bible who experienced pain and difficulty as they waited for God. We looked at Job, who suffered from loss and sickness. And we looked at Samson, who suffered because of poor choices, because of his rebellion and sin. But for both Job and Samson, their pain in different ways led them into a profound awareness of God, a rich experience of God's presence at the very moment of crisis in their lives. Now, this morning, we're going to look at one more character like this. And you might wonder why we're talking about suffering two days before Christmas. Can't we get on with the Christmas spirit, right? The reason is that this is the very world in which the good news of Christmas makes the most sense. A world where there is heartache and pain. And that pain grows into a longing for God to break in, to heal, and to restore. The best Christmas carols always reflect this. The two sides. The brokenness, the longing, and then the fulfillment of that longing. So listen to this one. Uh, If I was a singing preacher, I would sing this, but I'm not going to. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till He appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. These are the two sides. This is the world in which Christmas makes the most sense. A world that is in longing, that that experiences struggle. So Advent, these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, is only a miniature version of the way that we carry out our lives every day, waiting and hoping for the final breaking in of God, the final mending of all that's been torn in us and in our world. So this morning we're looking at Mary of Bethany, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. Now, there are lots of Marys in the Gospels, so this can get confusing very quickly. Evidently, if you did one of those popularity name rankings in the ancient world, Mary would have been at the very top of girls' names for a long time. So to keep it simple, know that this is not Jesus' mother, the Virgin Mary, nor is it Mary known as Mary Magdalene. This is Mary of Bethany. Now, there's also confusion because this Mary anoints Jesus' feet, right, as we just heard. She wipes them with her hair. But in the Gospel of Luke, we hear a very similar story. And the woman who does this in that story is known, her reputation is that she is a sinful woman. This is the one of the only ways in which the story is different. In every other way, it's the same. But in that story, she's described as a sinful woman. It's actually usually assumed that that woman was a prostitute. Now, as we're listening to Mary of Bethany doing this, 
I don't think we should assume this is the same person, actually. Because the fact that you have lots of Jews who are showing up to mourn with Mary and Martha after the death of their brother Lazarus and are showing no concern about her potentially being a prostitute, it doesn't quite make sense that this is the same woman. In every other case, they would have shown a reticence to come near to her because of this issue of her sin and her reputation. So it doesn't seem like this is the same woman. Now we're going to talk a little bit more about what we do know of her in just a second. But the particular pain this Mary experiences is that of heartbrokenness and shame. Heartbrokenness and shame. Now, the story we just heard of the raising of her brother Lazarus, it's certainly a story about the resurrection power of Jesus, his ability to raise the dead. But we're in danger of missing something much more subtle about the story, yet no less important. So these sisters, well, the first thing that we need to notice is that this story is about love. That is what this story is about. It's about love. So the sisters, Martha and Mary, they've sent a message to Jesus. And here's what the message is. Lord, he whom you love is ill. He whom you love is ill. Two verses later, this is chapter 11, verse 5. We're told very directly, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. We're not told how this relationship developed, but somehow Jesus has become intimate friends with this family. And Mary's personality in particular has made her especially close to Jesus. Do you remember the other story in the Gospel of Luke when Jesus visits the house of Mary and Martha? Do you remember this? Martha is busy working in the kitchen while Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus. And Martha actually complains about this to Jesus. But Jesus tells her, Mary has done the one thing that is necessary. That sitting at his feet and listening to him is much more important than whatever task Martha is concerned about. Now, this is why we should be hesitant to complain to Jesus about people, because he might turn it on us and say that we're the problem, right? That story in the Gospel of Luke captures Martha and Mary's personalities every single time we encounter them. Martha is the practical one. She's the get-it-done type. But Mary is a reflective one. She's more tender-hearted. And we'll see this in the way that they grieve, especially. Now, even in the story of Lazarus, there is a sense in which Mary is the central character. Notice the way the story is introduced in chapter 11, verse 1. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany. The village of whom? Of Mary and her sister Martha. Then we're told it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. It was her brother, Lazarus, who was ill. So you see, Lazarus and Martha too are both known through their sister Mary. At the conclusion of the story, after Lazarus is raised, which, know this, and we'll come back to it, the conclusion of the story is not when Lazarus is raised. It's at a dinner party afterward. And at that conclusion, it is Mary who is back front and center. But the reason she's front and center is because of her closeness to Jesus. 
She's pouring out her love and devotion to him in one of the most humble acts of love imaginable, anointing his feet with oil and wiping them with her own hair. So notice this to start. The entire story of Lazarus' death and resurrection is framed by a very human relationship between Jesus and a particular family, particularly Mary, a relationship of love, devotion, and trust from both sides, Jesus toward them and them toward Jesus. But this makes it interesting. Going back to the beginning, when Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus, all they say is, Lord, he whom you love is ill. Why don't they say more than this? It appears that Lazarus is very ill. Why don't they say more? Surely they mean more, don't they? It it reminds me a little bit of evenings at our house. Katie and I get the kids put to bed, and then one of us sits down first and asks the other, Do you want any popcorn? And what we mean by that is more than just, do you want any popcorn? We mean, would you make some popcorn? (laughs) We, We don't want to be too direct and we don't want to presume on the other. And so we ask it, you know, in a question, do do you want some? Now, of course, this situation between Lazarus and his family, it's much more serious than that, though. Why don't Mary and Martha say more? I think we need to consider who they are, who Jesus is, and something about human nature to grasp what's going on in this statement. So who are they? To all appearances, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are not at all a wealthy, high-class family. So take, for instance, the fact that when they have Jesus in their home, they do not have servants preparing a meal. Martha is preparing the meal, and she needs help. And then in the next occasion here in the uh, gospel where uh, Mary anoints his feet with oil, who's serving? Martha is, again. In fact, there's also this other highly unusual arrangement for the ancient world in which these two sisters live together unmarried. Did you notice there's no mention of any other family? Mary and Martha appear to live together unmarried. With Lazarus, too, there's no mention of any other family, no spouse, no children. And when you add up his illness, the lack of other family, and his sister's deep devotion to him, there are some who've actually proposed that Mary and Martha are caretakers to Lazarus. That he is a man who is unable to work, whether because he's physically or mentally unable. And so this family lives a strange and meager life. All the family living there together. Now, of course, there is the costly oil that Mary uses to anoint Jesus' feet at the end. But part of the point of that story is just how precious and rare the perfume is for Mary. This family, to put it bluntly, is not at all special. They are regular people. But who is Jesus? Jesus, by this point, is a known prophet and a miracle worker. Rumors are afoot he could be the long-awaited Messiah who will rescue Israel and bring about the long-held promises of their God. So if you put these things together, Jesus is this Very busy man. He's in high demand. His social status to all appearances is above that of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. 
So think again about Mary and Martha's message to Jesus. Lord, he whom you love is ill. No request, just a statement. Now think about human nature. The sense of unworthiness that humans often feel toward those who seem more important than them. The sense of smallness that we can perceive about ourselves toward those who seem greater in some way. All of us have done something like this before. In a case of deep desire, instead of asking, because of our own shame and unworthiness, we make a statement and we wait to see what the other will do with it. Martha and Mary's message is a language of humility, of not wishing to presume that they're so important to Jesus that He would drop what He's doing to attend to them. But, and this is very important, how a person responds to our statement of desire even if we don't actually ask for it, how a person responds to it, the words that express some unspoken desire in us, how they respond means everything to us. Everything hangs on us expressing that desire and then how are they going to respond to it? It communicates to you whether you are loved in some sense or whether the unworthiness you feel is more than a feeling. It's reality. And so how Jesus responds to Mary and Martha is going to, on some level, mean everything to them. So Mary and Martha are left to wonder, what's Jesus going to do with this information? They wait by their brother's sickbed, wondering if or when Jesus will come. Again, We're told soon after Jesus received the message that Jesus does indeed love Martha and Mary and Lazarus. His love is not a a figment of their imagination, but the way Jesus shows His love toward them is curious. Because just after we hear of His love for them, we also hear that Jesus chooses not to go immediately. That He stayed two days longer where He was. Then, while Jesus waits, while Mary and Martha wait for Jesus at Lazarus' sickbed, Lazarus dies. Now, Jesus does have a plan in all this. He is aware of Lazarus' dying and He intends to raise him. But can you imagine the situation for Mary and Martha? They've sent a message to Jesus. Surely they hoped He would respond, but He didn't. Or at least he responded too late. Now they've lost their brother. But this is not the only thing they've lost. You see, they believe that Jesus loved them and that he loved Lazarus. They know that Jesus was told Lazarus was sick. But still, for some reason, Jesus did not come. What happens when love does not do what you expect it or want it to do? When the the statement you put out there is not responded to in the way that you hoped. What happens then? The story is about love. But secondly, the story is about disappointment and heartbreak. It's about disappointment and heartbreak. 
Again, we encounter the difference between Martha and Mary and the way they grieve. So Martha hears Jesus is coming and she runs to get him, doesn't she? Mary, the quiet, tender one, she remains at the house. There's more than just an offhand remark going on here. And it's not as if Mary doesn't know. There's no way that Mary didn't also know that Jesus was coming. This is a difference in who they are. As we're going to see, Mary is heartbroken. And that is why she remains at the house. So Martha, though, ever the practical one, even in her grief, she confronts Jesus. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would, have di- would not have died. Jesus, having not responded to their message, has created a personal wound in Martha and Mary. Martha, and as we'll see, Mary too, believes if Jesus had come, their brother would still be with them. But Martha doesn't stay there long. She doesn't even take a breath. She keeps on. She moves on expressing her trust in Jesus, her belief that He is close to God, that God listens to Him. She confesses that He's the Messiah. But Martha doesn't necessarily think Jesus is going to do anything about Lazarus now. It's just that she's practical. There's no reason to stay in grief forever. Let's just move on. Martha is willing to leave this question hanging in the air. Is this what love looks like? Jesus loves Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, but Lazarus has died and Jesus let this happen. Is this what love looks like? Martha then goes to get Mary. Notice that it requires a personal request from Jesus to pull Mary out of her seat. Martha tells her Jesus is calling for her. And upon hearing it, Mary jumps up and she runs to Jesus. When she sees him, she falls at his feet and recounts her sister's words. If you had been here, my brother would not have died. But unlike her sister, Mary says nothing more. Her grief will not be overcome so easily. Again, the wound is personal. Mary is heartbroken. For one, she's heartbroken that her brother has died. But add to this that Jesus, whom she loves and she believes that He loves her, He could have prevented it. And He didn't. He could have been there. But He wasn't. And in his not responding to her message, Mary, like so many of us, when we perceive rejection, Mary has been shaken to the core of her identity. The unworthiness that she perceived about herself, the shame she perceives about herself, has only been affirmed in this. Have you ever experienced anything like this? Haven't you? A feeling of having been rejected and then beginning to believe all the worst things that you've ever thought about yourself. I knew it was true. I knew I wasn't worth the love that I wanted from them and that I wanted to believe they had for me. This is what can happen when you suffer from heartbrokenness and shame. Even for Christians, in our pain and struggles, whether they're psychological, physical, whatever, it can look as if God is betraying our trust rather than honoring it. Particularly with shame. 
There can be this vicious cycle where we anticipate rejection from those to whom we desperately want to matter. We want to believe they love us, but because of our own shame, we anticipate they're going to reject us. We simply struggle to believe that we are at the core of our being fully loved and fully desired. So what does Jesus do? Well, when He sees the heartbreak of Mary, her sense of personal rejection, Jesus weeps. He then goes on to do what He always intended to do, which was to raise Lazarus from the dead. But again, we must see that this is not the end of the story because the personal breach between Jesus and Mary and Martha is still there. We're still left with the question of why. Why could Jesus not have come when they requested Him or when they at least told Him they needed Him? Why couldn't He heal Lazarus instead of letting Him die? Now, to follow this story, we have to believe that there is some motive of love even in Jesus' waiting and in letting Lazarus die. Now, remember again, at the beginning of the story, verse 5, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So... When he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Look, the story knows very well that Jesus' waiting could be perceived as being harsh with Martha and with Mary. And so it wants to reassure us there is some love in this. As strange as it is, the story is laboring to express that there is a love at work in Jesus' delay and in His willingness to let Lazarus die. What could that love be? That's what we're asking. This is the final part of the story. The story is about love. It is about disappointment and heartbreak. But finally, the story is also about relationships being restored and all things being made new. The final resolution is not when Lazarus is raised. Rather, it's at a meal. You see, Jesus always intended the raising of Lazarus to be a sign, a picture in the present of what He is going to do at the end of all time. He's going to abolish death and sadness from the earth. And then we will sit down and share a meal with Him, restored to Him and to those whom we love. But at the center of the story at the end is Mary, the one who was wounded the most deeply. Here is Mary, anointing Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair. How has Jesus loved Mary in all of this? By the end, Jesus has given Mary what she most wanted. He's given her a brother back. But Jesus has also given to Mary something that she didn't even know how to ask. He's given her a deeper relationship to Himself. An intimacy with Him that she didn't even know how to ask for. You see, by letting Lazarus die, then raising him from death, Jesus has shown that He does in fact love Mary. That He loves her more than she ever considered she could be loved. His love for her is stronger than death. 
beyond death. Even Mary's shame itself is turned on its head. Mary didn't know if she was worthy of Jesus' attention. She felt herself to be unworthy. But here in this humble outpouring of love for Jesus, Mary becomes the exemplar of broken-hearted devotion to Jesus. She is lifted up as the one who is closest to Him when she felt the furthest. The story shows Mary at the feet of Jesus twice. The first time, she's weeping despondently. But the second time, she's anointing His feet in an outpouring of love, overwhelmed by His love for her. I love this line from near the end of the story. Mary is anointing Jesus' feet, and we're told in verse 3, the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. There's something extraordinarily beautiful about this. It's an extra. John didn't have to tell us about what the room smelled like. But here's what he's telling us. Mary's heartbrokenness and shame, healed by the love of Jesus, has produced a sweet smell that cannot be ignored, that you would not want to ignore. The hope of Advent is that in our waiting for God, He will do this for us. He will heal us and He will heal the places where we have been the most broken, the most hurt, the most filled with shame. And that those wounds will turn to springs from which life and hope can flow. That our lives healed by the closeness of Jesus, will be a fragrance. And that just as the glory of the Lord is going to fill the earth at the end of time in the way that the waters cover the sea, our lives produce a fragrance that is recognized by those around us as life. And not our own life, but the life of Christ, who is the only one who makes all things new. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.